animations can be used to create games, app tutorials, and user interface components. Animations can be seen in messaging apps, where animated reactions can convey rich feelings over a text interface. Loading screens can become less boring through animation, and voice assistant products can feel more alive through animation. But we still don't see much animation in our everyday applications. And this is partly because animation tooling is difficult to use. To make an animation, the typical workflow is to go into a tool like After Effects, render your animation, and then export that animation in a movie format. This format is not dynamic enough to be easily used on the wide variety of development platforms, such as web and mobile and React. The animation library Lottie did improve the animation tooling by creating a system for exporting animations to JSON and allowing them to easily scale up and down as vectors. But the animations still were simple and unidirectional. The developer did not have much freedom for how to move an animation in response to user input. Rive is a system for creating dynamic, animated, movable objects. Rive allows for the creation of animated elements that respond to user input. Rive has a tool that runs in the browser and allows the user to define the animation. The animations in Rive use a bone system that allows animators and designers to define the points of the animated sprite that the developer can then manipulate with code. This improves the painful handoff process that exists between animators and developers, and it gives the developer some programmatic control. Guido and Luigi Rosso are the founders of Rive, and they join the show to talk about the frictions of animation tooling and what they have built to improve the ecosystem. Rive is an impressive tool, and if you're looking for something to build animations with, take a look at Rive. Software Engineering Daily has partnered with SafeGraph for the SafeGraph Fast Food Data Hackathon Challenge. We're giving away $4,000 in cash prizes, as well as swag from Software Engineering Daily and SafeGraph. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company, which curates a data set of more than 6 million points of interest. SafeGraph has a high volume of location data, and you can build apps and data science projects with that location data. This is an open-ended, interesting hackathon, and if you've been looking for a creative opportunity to explore large data sets with the potential to win some cash prizes, this is a great opportunity. The hackathon is hosted on Find Collabs, and there's a lot of freedom for what you can build with SafeGraph. SafeGraph is a data-as-a-service company, and to enter, you can go to findcollabs.com and sign up. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. When you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com slash sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt. 
It's an on-call shirt. When you're on-call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com slash sedaily and try out Victorops, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. Victorops integrates with all of your services. Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic. And over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. And you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com slash sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor. Guido and Luigi Rosso, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. The subject of today's show is going to be animation, and particularly the technologies you guys have built around animation. And I like to start by just asking a simple question, which is, why don't I see very much animation in the applications that I use? So uh, this is Guido. I guess I'll tackle that first. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a combination of things. Th- there's a lot of sort of initial resistance to animation, like, oh, it's fluff. It's, it's just... Uh, doesn't really add value. And and I think some of that initial reaction, it comes from, I don't want to do the extra work, or it's hard to do that extra work. And I think, you know, a lot of companies nowadays with probably Apple setting the bar with the iPhone and, and other Windows Phone 8 came out a little later and had all these great animations that actually proved that, you know, they can improve UI and actually create a better UX with good animation. Of course, Google with their material design has done a lot of work there. And I think nowadays there's there's a few things. Tools aren't great. Probably what got us into animating UI was Flash, and that was a really good tool for that that allowed designers to really drive the vision of the product from a design and an animation standpoint, and actually build as you're concepting the tool, build it around or or whatever you're building the product that you're building, build it around design and animation as you're kind of creating the concepts, and that never really happened again since Flash. There hasn't been a great tool that allows designers to really work on the assets that are actually going to go into production with high quality design and high quality animation. And, you know, Flash had to go away for a lot of the reasons that it did. There was a lot of, you know, valid critiques to it. But what has really missed, you know, since then in, in the UI field, I think, is this ability for designers to really drive the vision of a animated product and an animated UI with the right tools to do that. And it's just really hard to do that right now. Right now, you have you know you have a designer will build something in one tool, then they'll maybe animate it in another tool that's not made for real time animation, something like maybe After Effects that's made more for video animation, and then they sort of hand that off to an engineer and say, well, here here are my keyframes. Here's like a video describing how it was done. I might create some red lines and you know descriptions and stuff like that, but it's still something that needs to be completely recreated by the engineer. And that makes iteration really hard, too, because if an engineer suddenly builds it out and now we're trying it, you know, the designer might say, well, you know, this actually doesn't work how I thought it would in the video when I was when I was sort of prototyping it. And we got to go back and change that. And that, that whole process starts again. You know, it's not it, there, there isn't really a tool that's really great for sophisticated motion graphics at the level that we're talking about. You know, there's little prototype tools that you can do, like transition from page A to page B. So that's sort of 
my belief as to why we don't see a lot of it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to do and there aren't great tools to do it. I think it's also been deprioritized for a long time. And I think it's been recently that people really want these delightful experiences and there is the need to kind of provide that. And it is hard. It's hard to do that. It's hard to build that either manually or build it from an engineering mindset. So it really does take a lot of uh, a design and development effort, you know, in, in tandem to produce something that is delightful like that. So it sounds like the workflows are quite insufficient today, partly because the tooling is insufficient. You have, it sounds like multiple handoffs, like perhaps a handoff from an animator to a designer and from a designer to a developer, perhaps the animator and the designer are the same person. What is the stack of technologies that people are using? You mentioned After Effects. I know there's also Blender. Give, give me the description of the stack of technology used for building animations and how the handoff occurs to the engineering department. Sure. So I'll, <clears throat> I can talk about it from the design side, and then Luigi can probably um, cover the engineering side. But So we actually used to run, before this, a design and development agency, and we used to do this work all the time for clients. So I headed up the design side. By the way, I'm Guido, and I'm the designer of the two of us. And on the design side, we'd often do a lot of mock-ups and designs and what you expect, you know, Photoshop, Illustrator, Sketch. Figma wasn't around when we were running our agency, but now Figma has kind of become a pretty big player in that field. So we'd probably start there. We'd start doing some sketches and designs in, in that. And then animation, like you mentioned, After Effects, you know, we'd, we'd probably export some of that stuff out. We'd cut up assets. We rarely do design work in After Effects, but, you know, sometimes it depends on, you know, the different designer that's, that's working on it. But that's really the, the bulk of it. To create the level of animation, like when we were working with Windows Phone 8, Microsoft was one of our clients, and we did a lot of Metro UI concepts early on and, and you know, animations for that. And the work that we were doing there was all After Effects. To create kind of that level of sophisticated animation that the UI required, you couldn't really build it in, in another tool. So there, there's other tools for design. You mentioned Blender. Blender's a lot more 3D, but they do have a little bit of 2D now, but it's really more 2D for games, like it's game-oriented and not a lot of UI work in there. Some companies are, experience, are experimenting with Unity now, mostly because of virtual reality. So Unity allows you to do stuff in the 3D environment. But really, yeah, from the design side, the, the stuff that we did from a motion prototyping perspective was mostly that. Now, before that, before we had died, Flash was probably our biggest tool, both for, on the prototyping side and on actually the implementation side. And I do think that that was the biggest positive that Flash had was that you could do a lot of your prototyping and implementation, and ultimately your prototype could become your final product directly in the same environment. You didn't have all this multiple handoff that had to happen. It was really great to be able to work on the assets that were actually your final product. And that's something that, you know, we aspire to do with our tool because it's we think it's the one thing that Flash got right, got, well, one of the many things, but probably one of the things, the best things that was lost when Flash went away. 
And I don't know if Luigi, you want to talk a bit about the tech stack and oh, oh actually you had asked about how does the handoff happen. So, sure, yeah. So we, we did a lot of work with, with clients. Uh, one of the big ones we, we actually ended up working for a long time at was Intel. We, we worked on a TV product with them and we actually have, we did a lot of After Effects videos there for, for that to showcase how we wanted this TV product to look and feel. We, we knew it wanted to have a lot of motion and to feel just really sophisticated, like a level above your typical TV experience. And one of the things we found was super challenging was when the handoff had to happen and Luigi's team needed to rebuild it. And I think they were doing it in WebGL at the time, or it might have even been C++ and OpenGL. We tried a few different things. We did it in HTML5, then we went just did the whole layout ourselves because we couldn't, we couldn't find solutions to certain animation requirements in just pure CSS. We started exploring doing the layout in WebGL we eventually went just to pure OpenGL with C++. So to help him and his team sort of know how to recreate that stuff, we actually took all the videos that we had built in After Effects and we created redline videos, which basically are videos that it's it's hard to describe without seeing them, but they're they're basically, it, it takes all the curves and all the anima animation curves, tweening and keyframing and all that, and it shows you the animation but it blocks out like the basic timing and it shows you the animation curves. It basically dumps all this data on the screen while things are animating so that the developer can look at the, on one side, the final animation and on the other side, the red line animation, which has all this data and all this information that is describing what's happening and they can pause it at any time and see like, okay, this you know, this box is at this X and Y coordinate at this time, and it's using this easing function. And it was just so much work to get to that. Like the design team not only had to come up with a whole concept first, but then they had to create these extra videos to show how the, uh, the thing needed to be implemented. And, uh, you know, going back to what we were saying before, then Luigi's team would implement it. And if for some reason something had to change, it was a total restart. We had to go back to creating, recreating the animation concept, tweaking what we thought was going to look right and updating the videos. And sure, you can do a few of these things, you know, in the actual code and sit side by side and designer developer just um, hash it out real quick. But, but for bigger concepts like that, you end up losing that ability to do a lot of fast iteration. At the end of this workflow, what's the artifact that is coming out of the animation and design tooling and getting handed off to the developer? What's the actual like file format? In this case, in this case it's a movie. It's a it's an MP4 or a .mov. Uh, that that's what After Effects spits out. And this was one very specific use case where we really needed something super highly tailored. There there was the design vision was really non-traditional for this product. And it required also, due to the constraints that we had on the hardware, some really clever, clever engineering to virtualize lists and such that were animating and elements within those lists were animating. So we really wanted to cull them, not draw them when they weren't on the screen as aggressively as we could. And that required a custom layout engine. So that's why we went down this route with this project. I think that's fairly non-traditional, but it is also it does go to show that that there really aren't tools to do things like that these days. The, the only environments that kind of have those concepts are really are really uh, video games. And that said, nowadays there are tools that are coming out that do have a lot greater visibility into their layout engines and give you even access to do your own layout at a much lower level that you know are, are starting to come out and are starting to expose the ability to create tools that can kind of tailor those experiences and, and that's something that that you know we, we we are striving to build 
But but that said, there are also today other solutions and other things that people use. There there is the ability to export an actual JSON file from After Effects, and a lot of things get dropped along the way. But basic shapes will get exported, animation keyframes will get exported, and then with a clever runtime like Lottie, you can play that back. But what ends up kind of what ends up happening is that you're basically playing back a glorified movie clip. It's it's in real time. It'll be much. Uh, much lighter to download than a movie, and it'll scale properly. It's vector graphics, but you don't get the ability to control things at runtime, like mixing states, mixing animations together. You don't get that with a tool that doesn't have that concept built in. You've got to do that all after the fact in your code. And that is something that we're also striving for, is having the ability for designers to to be empowered and, and see those states being mixed in the tool that they're using. So, so what we think is really lacking is a is a runtime animation tool and the supporting pipeline for getting those assets out of it into an engineering-friendly framework that can then manipulate anything that comes out of that. And you mentioned Lottie there. Lottie, if I recall, is a a React set of tools that it animates React components or something like that. So they actually, we actually worked with one of the one of the creator, creators of Airbnb, the, right? So the the story is is actually it started with a guy called Hernan Teresi that we've worked with, who's not related to Airbnb. He created the Body Movin plugin for After Effects, right. and he also created a web player for it. So basically, you could use the Body Movin plugin to export a lot of the animations from After Effects, like we was mentioning, into a JSON file. But you you lose a lot of stuff along the way. There, obviously, it converts to to vector, so not all you know imagery comes across. Not all of the After Effects plugins are usable. You sort of have to know what you can and can't use, and then um, and it gives you this this real time movie clip basically. That's that's not a movie though. It's data. And that can be played back by a web player that that he created. Hernan created this um, this uh, this runtime for the web. Airbnb, as far as I know, the story goes. Uh, he could probably tell it to you better. Uh, then approached him and said, "Hey, we want to take this and sort of productize it, make it into something called Lottie. We'll build the other runtimes. We'll build the we'll build you know like an Android runtime for it. We'll build an iOS runtime for it. So that basically, essentially, players for pl- iOS yeah, and players for that that mm-hmm. will play back this JSON file on iOS, on Android, and all that." And I think actually you had someone on your uh, podcast, Gabriel Peel, recently, yeah. who who I think he worked on the Android one, if I remember correctly. And so I believe they also have a JS runtime. Yeah, that's the one. Um, There's a JS runtime with components for React and I'm sure all, all the other major UI libraries. But yeah. yeah. So basically the idea of the Lottie system is you could make something in After Effects, which is the most commonly used video editing tool, animation production tool, and you could use this body moving tool to export it to a JSON file. And the JSON file needs to be interpreted by whatever platform is running the animation. So whether we're talking about Android or iOS or web or like React in the web, you need a runtime to actually execute or process and, and render the, that big JavaScript file that you've generated from, uh, from After Effects. Yep, exactly. So that is one model of bringing animations to the web or bringing animations to your mobile applications. And I've seen the Lottie animations, they look really nice. But having a refresher just now of the of that tool chain, that's kind of a kludgy tool chain. Like that's a, you know, it's still using After Effects. It's still producing this artifact that 
sounds very difficult to build a a graceful handoff process with. And it also sounds, I'm not sure how interactive those animations are, if they're just unidirectional. Yep, that's right. That's exactly it. After Effects itself isn't built for interactivity. It's built for video. So so you're working, well, well, first of all, you're you're working in three different tools. And it's the, you know, the the end-to-end pipeline is not owned by, you know, one vision. It's all these different third-party tools that are added on to create the final output. So 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 things definitely get lost along the way. Not everything is perfect. You know, your animation, you, there, there's some trial and error you have to do in After Effects to see what's actually going to export correctly and, and work as expected. But the biggest, one of the biggest issues we see with that pipeline is that like I was saying, After Effects is made for videos. It, it, traditionally, it's it's for After Effects effects, you know, for for video editing and post production. So the tool itself is not interactive. First of all, everything has to pre-render. When you hit the spacebar to watch something, it's not actually playing in real time. But that also means that while it's playing, you can't dynamically ma- manipulate anything. You can't. For example, create a video game character that has a run animation, a swim animation, a jump animation, and a shoot animation, and then mix those things together so that while the character is running, it can also aim and shoot. But maybe in another instance, using the same run animation, it's jumping or it's looking around. In After Effects, to do that, you basically have to create all those different states and and then create all the different permutations of those mixed together. And you can't tell it to mix those things at runtime. In After Effects, you just can't do that. So already for for a lot of video game developers that are require a lot of animation, it's not an ideal tool. But then Lottie itself, I believe, if I remember correctly, it only supports one animation. So you export a single animation. And if you want to add any interactivity to that, you you as the engineer now need to go and look into that file, the JSON file, and manipulate that all with code, which you can do, but the tool isn't, you know, isn't ideal for that. As an example, well, so so the animation mixing is a is a obvious one that you know just because you the designer can't actually create these multiple animations and preview them in the file themselves and After Effects themselves and the editor, you're not going to be able to. Here, what am I trying to say here? Uh, let me take a step back. So Lottie plays back really well a single animation. That's that's um, like like just a single video is is great uh, a single one one time animation. But then if you're trying to say grab a player's hand or something like that in the game and make them sort of aim up and down. You have to do that all with code. Whereas we think in, in our tool, we've we've built it to be built for interactivity. So you can actually create a bone chain in for your character's arm and then put a controller at the end of that arm. And the designer in the tool can actually manipulate that and see what it's going to behave like and then expose that controller to the engineer that just says, okay, I'm going to grab this at runtime and move it. And because of how the designer set up that arm to work, you know, the inverse kinematics and the bone system is going to respect all of that and not break. Anyway, that's just one example of, of something that with After Effects, you, you can find add-ons and plugins that do bones and stuff like that, but it's just not made for runtime and that stuff isn't going to translate to uh, to Lottie. Well, I think from the, from the UI perspective, there's an even better example that maybe can clarify kind of the difference between these, you know, the ability to mix states 
if you imagine, and, and we, we actually have a, a blog and a couple different posts about this. So, so if you want to see it in detail, you can look for it. It's called a liquid downloader. We have this example, which is a, a download process that basically has an indeterminate and a determinate state at the same time. So if you imagine something that's spinning on your screen indeterminately, but then it also shows progress by maybe fill, if it's a circle, it could fill up as um, the download proceeds. If you had to design that in After Effects, you'd have to make two separate animations, and then you couldn't preview mixing them together. And, and with Lottie, there are, there are tricks that developers, clever developers can get around to make that kind of work by, for example, looking at one portion of the timeline, applying that, and then maybe applying the second part of the timeline at a different time. But it only works if you guarantee that those, those keyframes don't touch the same things. While with a tool that's made for runtime animation and the ability to blend animations together, it should actually, based on input from the designer, blend those keyframes on top of existing keyframes before applying them to the final result, which means that you can see a result that is a combination of multiple states of multiple animations. And that's something that's very hard to do with something that's just not built for real time. Apache Cassandra is an open source distributed database that was first created to meet the scalability and availability needs of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. In previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, we have covered Cassandra's architecture and its benefits. And we're happy to have Datastax, the largest contributor to the Cassandra project since day one, as a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Datastax provides Datastax Enterprise, a powerful distribution of Cassandra created by the team that has contributed the most to Cassandra. Datastax Enterprise enables teams to develop faster, scale further, achieve operational simplicity, ensure enterprise security, and run mixed workloads that work with the latest graph, search, and analytics technology, all running across hybrid and multi-cloud infrastructure. More than 400 companies, including Cisco, Capital One, and eBay, run Datastax to modernize their database infrastructure improve scalability and security, and deliver on projects such as customer analytics, IoT, and e-commerce. To learn more about Apache Cassandra and Datastax Enterprise, go to datastax.com slash sedaily. That's Datastax with an X, D-A-T-A-S-T-A-X, at datastax.com slash sedaily. Thank you to Datastax for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. It's a great honor to have Datastax as a sponsor, and you can go to datastacks.com slash sedaily to learn more. So just to cut to the chase a little bit, your system that you've built, it's basically a fully, it's a full stack animation tool. So it's called, Rive is the name now, right? I mean, formerly called Flare or Two Dimensions. Now it's called Rive. So Rive is, as you described, a system that produces interactive artifacts. So the bone system you describe where you essentially define how, so you could take a, a, a sprite, like a, um, a, a cartoon of a, of a character in a game, and you can define bones, meaning these are going to be the pivot points that the character can bend its arms around or be controlled around, and the designer the, or the animator can actually, in, in your case, in the Rive case, create control points 
that define a, a file that once it's exported, it actually exposes an interface to the developer so that the developer can actually manipulate this exported artifact, right? Would you, is, is, that, is that kind of a, a big differentiator of this file, this animation file that actually gets exported from your product? Yeah, I think that, that's absolutely right. The designer sets up these control points and sets up the animation so that when they're working in the tool, they know how it's going to behave when the engineer touches those points that they've exposed, those interfaces. And that's to say, though, that, like having said that, the engineer can still still has access to the entire file and can do whatever they want in code. They can. Um, you don't have to just use the the API that we expose mm-hmm. to you. Although we, that is like you mentioned, our differentiator. That's what makes it easy for designers and developers to make that handoff simpler. Yeah, I think it's the the big point is the fidelity. There's the same fidelity in in the runtime as compared to what the artist sees on the screen when they're working in the editor in the tool. Everything that they do in the tool, whether it's bones, animations, custom constraints, inverse kinematics, all that stuff is supported by the runtime. And the runtime will play back exactly what you see in the editor. It'll mix the animations exactly as you see them mixed in the editor. And that means that there isn't the opportunity for things to get dropped along the way. The, the vision is kind of cohesive from the start. The tool and the runtimes are built to work hand in hand. And just to give an example of how this interactivity is uh, invoked in practice, if you were to think of a, one of these unidirectional animations, these, these uh, less dynamic animations, you could think of something like a progress bar, like you land on a, on a web page and there's just a progress bar and uh, you know the progress bar animates the same way no matter what is going on in the page. In contrast, uh, if you were to use an animation from, from your tool, from Rive, you could have something like a character, like a you have this, <laughs> this uh, bear, this teddy bear thing where it loads on the page, and as your mouse is moving around the page, the character's eyes are tracking where the mouse is moving. So it's very clear that there's a link between my mouse movements and the bear, the bear animation. And I just use this as an example because I'm really trying to drive home the point that creating an an interactive interface with a sprite, with an animation, seems like a pretty important breakthrough in animated UI development, if we want to actually make animations consumable by the average web development team, this is a pretty big step change in that direction. Sure. Yeah, we, we definitely think so. And, you know, to to, to your example, we actually have a, a demo of, of this bear it, uh, in, a, in a login screen. And you can you can take it even further than just tracking your eyes. You know, like, for example, he the bear might track your cursor as you're typing your username. And then if you go on the password field, the bear might cover its eyes, like not to look at your cursor. And it's tracking all these different states. And if you hit, you know, if you hit the submit button and your password is wrong, the bear can react with a upset animation. If you get the right animation or the right password credentials, the bear reacts with a happy animation. So you can add all this interactivity that also has meaning. It's also tied to the UX of the experience. And we think that that, you know, like you were mentioning, is something that traditionally with, with just creating a simple asset that's there, maybe it's just a bear looking at you, 
bobbing up and down kind of breathing and it's not reacting, that feels like the what we kind of started talking about at the beginning, oh, that's just fluff. That doesn't really add anything. Okay, I've got a mascot here that maybe it's part of my brand, but that's all it's really adding to this. And instead, we add some of the interactive elements we talked about, and we actually make the experience delightful and superior to a typical login screen. Well, it's worth pointing out one more time, like, I think our current user interfaces are pretty brittle. You know, they're pretty brittle in the sense that or, or maybe brittle is not the, the right word, but it's all boxes, rounded rectangles. It's all pretty static, and it's just very functional-oriented. Uh, you know, you hover over something, and uh, maybe it becomes slightly highlighted. And to some extent, like, yeah, that's what we want out of our interfaces. We want it to be practical. We don't need it to be, like, shaking and changing colors all the time. But that's not to say that it animation doesn't have a place in UI development. Like, we could certainly have more dynamic interfaces, particularly if you think about, like, you know, tutorials or showing people how particular applications work. I think animation has a really big place there. So I, I really see the the practicality in animation and, and I think exposing people, ex- exposing the right interfaces to working with different animated components can make a big difference. So I'd like to get into the engineering side of things. So just to taking a little bit more of a top-down approach, again, the the system for creating these animations is you have a fully, a full browser editing environment. So it's like you open your editing environment and it looks in some ways, kind of like a Photoshop sort of application, but it's for creating animations in the browser. I guess the first thing I'd like to ask is, is there some newer technological development that has allowed that kind of product to exist in the browser? Because I have not seen many things that are that dynamic and that fully featured in the browser. I mean, it does remind me of Figma in some ways. Like Figma, if people use Figma, it's oftentimes kind of an amazing experience for, if you use it for the first time because it's it's like a you it's like you're looking at Photoshop in the browser. It's that level of uh, computation and creative freedom in the browser, which, you know, for many people that can be like shocking that you know that's not required out of a desktop application. So your editor looks like it's kind of in that same neighborhood. Is it difficult to get that level of computational complexity in a single browser tab, in a single interface in the browser? I think the technology has actually been there for this for, for, for quite a while. It's that a lot of people haven't really kind of taken the chance on it. And I think a lot of that does come from the fact that traditionally people haven't been used to using full-blown apps in the web. And when, when they did, it was from a plugin system like a Flash or an ActiveX or a Silverlight plugin. And in the last 10 years or so, that you know, the web has really come a long way. There's the ability to do all kinds of things, have low-level access to, to graphics, and have more sophisticated ways to manage UIs and the state of those UIs, really kind of tailor visual components to whatever you want them to look like, build your new layout systems. And, and on top of that, there's, there's also been this, this push for stability. The web is much more stable. There's the ability to, to build software that really is full-blown software with the web. JavaScript has evolved a lot. 
And I think that, that that's definitely a big part of it. There's the ability now to create sophisticated, mature applications with a technology stack that's been tried and true and, and developed for a really long time and and now has these these players, your your web browsers that that kind of give you the the groundwork to to build upon. And obviously WebAssembly is a big one. We we make use of WebAssembly for a few different components in our system. It just bridging the gap with um with lower level code, having access to some of the some maybe some libraries that you couldn't have easily ported yourself to the web before. Um, some some of the more traditional low level access to things like OpenGL that a lot there's always been a bit of a stigma of using WebGL just because it's not been as mature as OpenGL. It doesn't have a same, the same features. That's changed. There's WebGL too. You have access to a lot more. And I think that a lot of the tools that were built for OpenGL are now able to, and a lot of the libraries that were built for it can now be written and, and, and developed in the web and furthermore work really performantly with WebAssembly on the web. Um, and so I, I think it's just kind of all these things coming together and allowing for the building blocks to build these kinds of applications. But the truth is that I think the, the biggest change has been that people are willing to use apps online now. And I think that that's something that's actually been possible for quite a bit. But you know, without someone like a Figma or a tool like ours to kind of prove the point, people were just scared. That's one of the biggest things that we heard when we, when we launched Nima, our first tool in, in 2016. It was also an online editor for 2D characters, completely built with WebGL. And we use React for the UI. All your data was saved in the cloud. And the biggest thing we heard again and again was, I don't trust this. I'm, <laughs> what happens if this crashes? Where's my data? How do I know? Where's the save button? Like, how do I, how do I know? How do I get backups for this? Um, you get a lot of comments about things that are total edge cases, but that people really hang on to really strongly. Like, what if I want to be animating at the beach where I don't have an internet connection or on an airplane? And the truth is that uh, while we have an answer for that, you, we, you actually can keep our tool open and it, it saves locally. And then when you're connected again, it, it reconnects to our servers and, and synchronizes. The, the thought that you know there's this synchronization that needs to happen or there's this risk of not being able to do that turns a lot of people off. They think of themselves as, you know, I've been doing this, this, this is a problem I don't have right now and it's not a problem I want to have. It adds this extra thing that I don't need to worry about. And I think there's probably a lot of that thinking that prevented a lot of people from building these types of tools. It, like Luigi was saying, it wasn't until someone did it and people started using it and realized, okay, maybe I don't care about that so much. Or the flexibility of just opening a website on whatever machine I'm on and having my tool working there is yeah. worth the the trade-offs. Yeah, trade yeah, yeah, we think we think that there's so many advantages to that model. I mean, just just not having to install anything and knowing that your software is always up to date or not having to manage multiple licenses for multiple computers and just being able to open it up on your laptop or wherever and you've got all your files. You know, you don't need a tool like Dropbox or something else to sync them because we take care of that for you. Just, so I think the model now and, and Figma has dramatically helped us in this regard where they've proven something that we don't need to prove because they've grown so much so quickly over the last few years that they've they've sort of proven this is a better way to do things and we sort of get to reap the benefits of that and i think users get to reap the benefits of that with with new stuff that will be coming out so the question of actually being able to edit offline it has taken me a long time to trust Google Docs on an airplane. But I think actually 
I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your browser can write to disk just fine, right? Like, so if you if you open a Google Doc on a Chromebook, for example, and it has this, there's a little indicator you see, it's like a lightning bolt that is suggesting that you're offline. And I think when you're writing your text document, you might as well be on Microsoft Word. You might as well be on a t- entirely client-side experience because although you are in your browser and the browser historically is this thing that is just like taking up ephemeral resources unless you're connected to the cloud, actually, if you're in an offline mode, you can write to disk just fine. Is that what your tool does? Is that what Rive does? If you're animating in an offline circumstance, it's just writing to your local disk and it's just going to sync to the web next time you get connected? Yep, that's exactly it. And and it's still it's still fairly nuanced how you do that with the web. There's a variety of different ways to write to the disk, and most of them are fairly abstracted. It's not like your typical file I.O., even though there are, there, there are a couple... Um, couple different specs that are being pushed for having something that's more akin to actual file I.O. on the web. But for, for example, you have local storage. That's a really simple key value that is synchronized to disk. It's a little limited. If you want to use more space and maybe save some bigger data, you can use uh, uh, IndexedDB, which is actually what, what we do. We, we use kind of a combination of both of those things to save your revisions. So as you, whenever you work on something, um, the change that you make, the changes that you make get saved to disk. And then shortly after, if there's a connection available, they'll be sent up to the server. Once they're acknowledged, we can clear out the local saves. But until we get that acknowledgement back, we keep them on your local computer so that the next time you open it up, it'll still be there. All your changes will still be there. We actually revision it as you go along. We have a different couple different heuristics that we use to figure out whether it's time to create a new revision. But for example, if enough time has passed, we'll just make sure that we'll create another little snapshot in your timeline of the file so that you can go back to exactly as it was at that time period. That way, if for some reason you think that um, something didn't get saved or you think that someone else uh, may have opened the same file and there are conflicting changes or something to that effect, you have all that history, all that backup. You can go at any point back and check. And, and, And the truth is that we actually do a lot of work to make sure that those conflicts don't exist, but it helps people to know that there is this kind of history there and they can go back at any point and see what they were doing yesterday and what the file looked like yesterday. And that's, you know, thanks to the fact that we do have the ability to, to save to the drive and just kind of sync when, as, uh, as quickly as we can. Hmm. That interface between the browser and the disk, this is getting a little bit off topic, but they have to keep that pretty sparse because of the security risks, right? Like, because you don't want any random website you go to to be able to basically take over your hard drive. Yeah, it's it, it's abstracted and it's it's sandboxed. So um, I think it's based on the domain. You'll get access to this to the sandbox, and mm-hmm. you can read and write to this key value store. But one thing that you know so you could do is that if you do clear your local data, that will also clear a lot of that data. And and through the dev tools, you have the ability to kind of browse that data, and you can see what's in there. But it's not like I can create a tool that reads what some other tool wrote, um, mm. unless it's hosted on the same domain. I'm not going to get access to. To that data, and and likewise, uh, you can't just uh, take up a ton of space. There are quotas there, and there are ways to manage them to make sure that you know you can't just eat up all of someone's hard drive. What do you guys use WebAssembly for? We use WebAssembly for a few different things, but the biggest one, and it was a change that we did early in 2019, 
was to replace our renderer. We were using before, so, so the, our, our first product used um, just WebGL written in JavaScript. And then for the second iteration, when we, when we created Flare, which is now Arrive, we just used Context2D for rendering vector shapes. And then we quickly realized that there were some very specific features that we had in our, in our first tool that we couldn't do easily in Context2D and in the Canvas 2D painting context. And so we found from, from the Flutter team, another great Google team that, that you know, is, we're embarrassed to admit that we didn't know of them at the time, but, but the Skia team is, uh, creates a really amazing low-level graphics engine that works on the concept of vectors, shapes, uh, uh, image meshes, me raster meshes with um, textured 2D images on them. And uh, all they need is uh, 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 an OpenGL context, or you know, now they have support for Vulkan and Metal and a bunch of other stuff too. But thanks to that, we were able to, to WebAssemble it and bind it to WebGL and uh, have this really high-powered renderer that goes quite a bit further than what's traditionally available on the web for, for, for the canvas. And, and so, so that kind of unlocked a lot of the newer features that you'll see that, that are on Rive, like the ability to do some of the shadows that we have, some of the blur effects, uh, the masking effects that we have. And yeah, so, so that, that, that's a big one. And then we use it for a few other smaller libraries for things like uh, managing the state of what's currently visible. We want to do that in a really efficient way. So mm -hmm. we'll build up kind of our, our tree for what's, what's kind of on the screen, and then we'll cull it aggressively in something that's lower level. Mm -hmm. Some of our mesh triangulation stuff is also done in a, in a C library so that we can kind of do that really efficiently and know that it's kind of a, the, these, these things that are really nicely compartmentalized and mm. need to be really performant and are kind of tried and true and have a bit of history. It's nice to know that we can, we can use them through WebAssembly and, and we do. That's cool. I'm sure we could go deeper on that subject, but I want to get to discussing Flutter. So a couple of years ago, we did a few shows on Flutter and my recollection of Flutter is is essentially a system for doing cross-platform UI development. So if you write an app in Flutter, you can potentially have that app work in both iOS and Android. You guys could just explain what Flutter is and why you started working with it, why it's relevant to Rive. Sure. I, I think that this is going to be a little, it's, it's hard to find the right words because Flutter is so much more than what I'm about to describe it as, but it's essentially a framework or a UI toolkit that will then cross compile to native machine code on Android, iOS, uh, Mac OS nowadays, and, and even the web today too. So there's... Because it's ARM code, right? Like it's lower level processor. I mean, this gets out of my realm of expertise, but I just remember ARM code. Like it's, that's right. The so, so the Dart, the Dart uh, SDK can compile a snapshot of your code directly all the way down to ARM code. And, and likewise, it, it'll also compile the snapshot to, to bytecode that you can run through a VM. And, and that's how most of the, the hot reload works. And, and again, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in this. I just, I'm a big fan of Dart. And, and this is what I've gleaned from, from working on it and with it. I think it's a, it's a really powerful language and the tooling is really spectacular. That's one of the best things about Flutter is really the tooling that goes into Dart. Um, there's amazing static an analysis. There's amazing compilers. We actually, one of the first animations that we showed on screen with Google was, uh, it was in uh, 2018, the History of Everything app that we built. This one fish that was on the screen that its back kept breaking. It was really funny. It looked like the back of the fish was getting broken in half. 
And what we found is that something was going wrong in this feature we have, which is called Jelly Bones, which basically takes uh, it takes two bones and then it subdivides them with uh, with Bezier curves and it lets you kind of control how the, how the it curves. And a really talented animator that works with us uh, used that to create the swimming motion for a fish. Um, and every once in a while, we saw that it would it would it would look broken. Um, and so, in looking through it, we saw that there was one part of the code that only when it was AOT compiled, so when it got compiled to ARM code, some of the instructions would go awry, and one of the control points would end up in the wrong spot. And we broke it down, you know, frame by frame, and we figured out exactly where it was happening. We sent it over to the the, the Dart team, and they had a fix within days. And and it was something that was in their AOT their AOT compiler. They didn't have enough registers. So so certain code that required using a certain number of registers. And I guess that flare at the time was the only runtime that put that much pressure requiring those extra registers. It would start not copying things properly. And so the moral of the story is that they own the whole pipeline there. And the Dart code is literally writing out the machine code that's going to be running your app. And they were able to really quickly fix that and turn it around for us. And, and for us, having that kind of access to, to a team that has that much passion and that much uh, desire to make a product that's high quality is, is unparalleled. And, and I think that that's, that's really one of the biggest selling points of Flutter for us is the fact that there is this super high quality development environment that goes, you know, is even lower level than, than the UI toolkit and everything else. It's Dart that enables the hot reload features. It's Dart that enables um, all the static analysis and this crazy performance that Flutter gets by compiling to a native machine code. Sorry to, if this makes you repeat yourself, but why do you use Flutter and what do you use it for? So the, the point of using Flutter is that you can write code once and it'll run on these on, on, on multiple operating systems, right? So you can write you can write your so specifically the animation code. Oh, oh, so so sorry for for Rive, we have a runtime. It was one of the first runtimes that we wrote for 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 Flare at the time was in Flutter, and the reason we did that was because it was a really easy way for us to get on both iOS and Android, and also unlock an animation ability in Flutter that wasn't currently available. One of the things that we heard from from our friends at Google was that they were it was very hard for them to create certain animations that you know you can see if you open up any Google device. Sorry, Luigi, real quick to clarify. What Luigi was saying before about using Flutter to build apps for that deploy immediately to iOS or Android or whatever, that's that's like what an end user would see, a Flutter end user, that's why they would choose to use Flutter. So, so a developer nowadays chooses to build their, say they're building a mobile app, they choose to build their mobile food delivery app right. once in Flutter and it automatically builds an iOS and an Android version. Right. And now Flutter is a lot more than that because as Luigi was saying, it's actually a great dev environment on its own regardless of that feature. But it also now deploys to multiple different platforms. So aside from iOS and Android, they now have desktop, they have web. And so really you can build an app that that you you build it once and provided you have you know resizing logic and UI logic that works across different devices, you don't need to rebuild all these different apps. So that that's to answer your question before about like what why someone like what is Flutter and why would someone use it? Well, but, I still don't understand what matters there for for us your team because I get it. So like if I'm a Flutter developer, I'm building a, a food food delivery app. Right, I build it in Flutter. That's fine. Maybe I'm using some animations, but uh, I guess I, I don't understand what the depth of... For us, there was a clear 
there was a clear fit for an animation tool there. There was no tooling available at the time when we started talking to the Flutter team mm. for creating animated graphics in Flutter. Mm. So, so we, uh, uh, an old friend of ours actually heads up the product management team there. Um, we, we actually worked together when he was at Microsoft. His name is Tim Sneath. Uh, Luigi and I used to have a design and development agency that did some work for them back then. And when he started working at at Flutter, we sort of caught up and said, or we saw he was at Google, and we said, you know, let's let's catch up. What are you what are you up to? And he showed us Flutter, and he showed us. He mentioned when when we were telling him what we were up to, we were building this animation software specifically for game characters, which was Nima, the one Luigi mentioned earlier. And he mentioned, you know, we uh, we have this pretty involved process right now to create animations with Flutter. For example, one of one of the things I think Luigi was starting to get to is I don't know if you've seen the Google Assistant, like the sort of the G that appears yeah. and it spins around like with four dots. Um, if it's listening to you, it sort of morphs into like a little microphone that's yeah. listening and all that. So those were all After Effects animations that were handed off to the Flutter team. And there were, I don't know how many, but a lot of different animations showing, you know, this is what happens if if it's listening. This is what happens when it's processing. This is what happens as it's loading data. And they had to go in and just recreate that all in code. And Tim was telling us how, you know, how much of a burden that was. It took them, I, I don't remember the exact number now, but it was months to, to create everything, to recreate it exactly as the designer wanted it to look like in Flutter. And so he sort of mentioned to us, you know, would your animation tool, this like game character animation system you've built, would that help us in any way? And that sort of sparked a light bulb for us. And we were like, well, yeah, we just, you know, we're, we're missing some key uh, things that de designers would need for UI, like mainly we were missing vector graphics. So our initial tool was primarily for game engines. So it was all raster graphics, which mm -hmm. is what um, game engines are optimized to be able to render quickly. And vectors are, are, are not great at that. But we, we added that in. That's part of why we went with Skia, what Luigi was talking about. And we just realized that there was this great opportunity for something that we had already built to just improve and, and fill this hole that Flutter was missing. And while we were finding this hole that Flutter was missing, we realized that it's a bigger problem, not just with Flutter, but that, you know, all design and development teams need. You know, we, we've talked to people at, at all sorts of different companies that have a need for this type of software. So that's when we started realizing, okay, well, Flutter's our first runtime, but we're going to keep doing what we did with Nima, where with Nima we had a Unity runtime, we had a JS runtime. You know, we're going to keep doing that with all other dev platforms. So now, now we have a Swift runtime. We have an Android runtime that's that's about to be released. We are working on game engine runtimes as well. And that's really sort of Flutter sort of gave us the inspiration for mm. it helped us realize that there was a much bigger product than the simple game animation system we were building. You know, there was this bigger vision that we could go after. And on top of it, it it's it's our first runtime. It was the first runtime that we we tackled because it gave us the ability to kind of run our animations on uh, iOS and Android right off the bat. And by runtime, in this case, you mean there is an artifact that gets exported from the Rive editing tool, you know, the user can use through the browser that we were discussing. It's going to produce this artifact, this, this dynamic animation artifact that depending on what client device you're going to be using that animation in, you're going to need a runtime, whether it is iOS or Flutter or React 
whatever it is, you're going to need some way of consuming that artifact and manipulating it. Exactly. Yeah. Think about it as you know an NPM package, uh, a package on PubDev for Flutter, or just the library that you can go grab from GitHub and install yourself if you want to. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Can you tell me more about your interactions with the flutter team and and in the flutter ecosystem like just as a as an example of how people are using your tooling so we can't share specifics about the teams that are using it but there are many teams in google that have actually launched already uh, their products um using i'll say that if they're using flutter they're probably using rive for their animations um, so you can go find out which of the Google teams are using Flutter for their products. One of the ones that has publicly shared the information is Google Assistant. So their new version that's coming out sometime this year, I'm not sure if they've launched yet. They, they might have not yet. Uh, that's using Rive um, for all their animations. It's it's a new... All the animations in Google Assistant? Well, I don't... So I don't know if it's everything. We're not involved in their day-to-day stuff, but but they are using Rive for a lot of stuff like, you know, um, uh, tutorial modes like swipe from the right to to bring up this menu, swipe from the top to do that. So those those are Rive animations that they're, that they're working with. And there are other teams within Google that, that do that. And, and that's one of the big benefits we have with interacting with the Flutter team. You know, they, so Flutter is, is sort of, they're trying to get adoption within Google of their own platform. So when they're convincing some big new uh, product within Google, you know, build your mobile apps or your, 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 your whatever app, you should be using Flutter for it. At the same time, 
they're kind of pitching us too, because if they're using Flutter, their designers, we hope, are going to want to use our tool to create their animations and their graphics. So that's part of why our we're super fond of the Flutter team and all the individuals there, but they're also sort of champions for our own product within Google, which is pretty special. And we know of some some other external teams, like I think uh, uh, it's no secret that the, the Hue app is all built yeah. in Flutter. And Philips Hue. And all the animations in there are, are built with Rive. A lot of the Sonos ones are as well. Yeah, there's and, a lot of apps nowadays. Yeah, and there aren't others that are coming to my head, but I know that there's uh, there's a few startups that we know of that, that yeah. I think we can't probably share, but there are quite a few startups that are uh, pivoting towards using our technology too. Do you guys have, this is a far-flung question, but do you guys have any perspective on the Flutter versus React native for a developer that wants to build a cross-platform application? So we, we have our perspective. I, I think that um, at, at the time, uh, I was really fond of React Native. I found a lot of the flexibility and kind of the, the concept behind it was really smart. And it, it, it kind of applied a lot of the, the concepts of state management for UI widgets that were sort of had been built by, by the React components to, to mobile was, was genius. And uh, w- one of the problems that I ran into with it early on was the fact that just running a, a JavaScript context on an embedded system required, well, inherently, it requires a certain amount of memory. And, and specifically, when you start working on some of the not-so-powerful systems, that can become a constraint really quickly. And I think that that was one of the big things that I immediately saw a huge benefit over with Flutter was the fact that it is so much more efficient in that regard. The fact that the code is also compiled to machine code and doesn't have to be interpreted is an enormous win. And then on on top of all that, the fact that you literally have access to the entire rendering pipeline, you get to paint every pixel yourself. You're not calling into, you know, an abstraction of a list view that's generated by either Android or iOS, and then it's painted by either Android or iOS. You're calling code that then paints within the same ecosystem and the same platform. So there's there's that transparency that particularly when working with someone like Guido, who is a designer who wants the vision to be from from design to to shipping to be driven by design. There, there are a lot of cases that you'll run into where you want to customize something on Android or iOS, and it'll be a lot of work and it'll be an exceptionally higher amount of work to get it done in React Native because you need to pipe it through um, the JavaScript context and down to those different uh, rendering systems. And instead, in Flutter, having direct access to that rendering system at any point in your code base uh, makes it so much easier for us to build these tailored experiences, these tailored UIs that go beyond what the native platform offers. And I, I think that that's something that, that maybe a lot of people don't realize, but but with Flutter, you, you essentially have something that's much more akin to a game engine. You really do have access to the entire stack, which you don't with React Native. Yeah, so if you care about performance, really, if you're building anything where performance really matters, I think it's a no contest. You, you, you have to use Flutter over, if, if the choice is just React Native versus Flutter. Now, if you're trying to quickly do something that you know, is more, of, more static or you're, you're already entrenched in a, in a React world, then there's, there's, there's reasons why you might want to stay you with it. You have a lot of JavaScript developers. There's a lot to be said for that. The fact that you can kind of use the same techniques and skills that you've learned to build a, a, you know, a very high quality web app, a testable web app, and now you can apply it to mobile 
that's really impressive. That that's really empowering. And yeah, that's a React Native. And that's something that React yeah. Native does. You know, it, it's a big point in its favor. With with Flutter, you do have to learn Dart. You do have to learn a different language. You know, from my perspective, that I welcomed that. It was I got so much more out of Flutter that learning this new language, which was by the way very very familiar. It's very it's very similar to you know a C sharp, a Java. Uh, a JavaScript, a TypeScript, they're all, they're all very, very similar. If you're, if you're fluent in any one of those, you'll pick up Dart really quickly. And like I said, the benefits far outweighed the, you know, kind of the technological challenge of jumping into this new ecosystem. But yeah, the React Native, the fact that you can just use um, the same tech that you're using on your web is, is, is pretty, it's really empowering. It has historically been unwise to bet against JavaScript. Absolutely. Yeah. And our site, our platform is currently entirely built in JavaScript. We Webpack Rive right now. Um, we use modern uh, ES6 JavaScript, and we're always updating it and seeing what, uh, what what new features are coming out. It's it's definitely you know it's a force to be reckoned with. It's so flexible. It's so uh, it's so easy to get going and build something and and deliver it and to you know millions of people quickly. That that's undeniable. How close did you guys watch the? developments in the React ecosystem? Because I, I did a show a while ago about some of the newer developments in React, and I, I think they're doing a lot of engineering around trying to make the bridge, that JavaScript bridge, more efficient. For like, React Native, specifically? For React Native. I, I don't follow it enough. Um, one of the things that we are doing right now, like we don't mention earlier, is that we are releasing an Android, um, an Android runtime soon. Uh, should be the end of this month. And once we have that, we will have the ability to offer uh, Rive in React Native as well. Mm. And so we'll be exploring that a little more deeply soon. Last time I used React Native was a couple years ago that I built a full application with it. So I haven't kept up as abreast of it as I'd like, but um, but we do keep up to date with, with React. Like we, we use React on our site every day. There are builds running right now <laughs> that are yeah. you know webpacking React for us, but. Um, but yeah, that that's something that we'll 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 tackle soon. The the React Native side. There was a listener that wrote in with this uh, theory of how Google is going to remake the full stack of their operating system, and they were just describing to me how Flutter and Skia and Fuchsia and all these different things are going to fit together to be the future of all of our runtimes. Have you guys had any? conversations with anybody about any of this this stuff because the flutter is kind of futuristic along with skia and theoretically fuchsia although nobody's talking about fuchsia really yeah we we we, we don't get to hear a lot of that unfortunately we're, we're kind of outside that that circle but i mean we've heard the same rumors we've definitely you know pe yeah. people are wondering about that it does seem like that's kind of the direction things are going in but one of the things that we really strongly believe in, maybe even further thinking than that, and it could be that the systems you just described end up adopting that, but one big thing that we really strongly believe is going to be the future is WebAssembly. Right. We really think that that, that, clear. that will be yeah. just the common runtime for everything and everything. And I mean, WASI is, will be at the system level. You'll have, hopefully, we'll have operating systems that run across all different devices that basically just have that that small WASM bridge and... What does that look like in more detail? So I'm not as fluent in this as I should be, although we are working on it because it is something that we think is going to be a big part of our future too. It's the ability to basically compile your code to WebAssembly and then have low-level system access to things like file.io, um, the graphics, 
uh, input. It's, it's this bridge, from, from my understanding, WASI is the bridge between uh, WebAssembly and, and your native system. And what we can see will be the future is, is kind of this, this sort of common language runtime that, that's WebAssembly that will allow all kinds of applications, doesn't matter what they're written in, as long as they compile to that, to run across a variety of different operating systems that just need to expose these kind of low-level hooks. And then all of a sudden, you have a variety of different frameworks. And, and you know maybe one like Flutter will become the de facto standard on that. But what ends up happening is that there's no longer this kind of need to be quite, kind of so close to the metal on the specific hardware that you're targeting. You'll be able to be just a few inches off, but with something that's abstract enough that can run anywhere. And and I think that that's what's going to be really, really empowering for us as developers. But also, I think it'll end up in there being way more tools and way more features for designers to use to support these kinds of systems, just because the flexibility will be, it'll, it'll just be so much more flexible. There's no fundamental bottlenecks to that becoming a reality, right? Like, this doesn't really break, it wouldn't necessarily break any security best practices or anything. Like, we can, we can engineer around all those things, right? That's, like, that's the hope. Yeah, there's there's tons of conferences and, you know, discussions about that 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 subject specifically, and I am definitely not qualified to, all right, to all comment right. on it. But I do think that, I, I, I believe that we can, and I, I think that, you know, it's worth exploring that to get to that. Did you guys have any particular interest in animation or was this just a random engineering problem that you kind of stumbled onto no guido and i have been doing animation since i think uh we put our hands first on a computer and then when we were i think 16 we had an opportunity to uh we, we were living in malaysia at the time and we had an opportunity to so, so we were working with with this company called Homeland. They were doing well, actually, they, well, were, they were called Diamond Multimedia. Yeah, DMM. They, they made the first Rio MP3 yeah. player. I don't know if you remember that. One of the very first MP3 players you could buy. It was called the Rio oh, Diamond yeah, Multimedia. Like a heart, the hardware device. Had the, yeah. the jukebox after that. They're, and and anyway, they we were playing a lot of video games at the time, and uh, that's actually how uh, we started in this world. We, we you know we were modding games like Quake and Tribes and Counter Strike, and they needed some people that could do that for them and build things like one of the things they wanted to do was advertising within these systems. So they wanted to be able to have like the ability to sell spots within a Counter-Strike game and that kind of stuff. And this was back in, you know, 1998 or 99 or something. So it was a, it was a long time ago. And so Guido and I kind of, they, they had this, while they were looking for people to, to build things like this for them, they had a challenge that was uh, uh, design our new logo I worked on it for weeks at a time, and you know, uh, came up with something, submitted it. You could, you could win. Yeah, I think, I think they they said that they were gonna, they had prizes. Like yeah, they you had could prizes. win one of these Rio MP3 players, which was super rare at the time. Or, or the the first prize, the grand prize, was a job. And uh, and Guido did the his submission for the design for the logo. I think the night before, he's like, oh, whatever, you did this, and maybe I'll do it too. And he won first place, and he got oh. uh, he got the job. And uh, they, you know, I, I got the consolation prize, the Rio MP3 player, which which I was happy with. But I also made the very distinct decision that you know what, I'm going to stick to programming. And it ended up being a good decision because Guido and I then, you know, I, I got brought onto that company a little after too, and we started working together hand in hand on building uh, user interfaces and experiences for them at the time. And then that led to our first agency. And we've always been kind of straddling the world of design and development, and specifically with animation. This was during the big boom of Flash. Yeah. So our our first company. So after this 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 short stint with Diamond and Multimedia, which ended with a dot com bust, they 
they had to cut back a lot on on the the remote contractors, which is what we were, obviously starting out in Malaysia. And then we had moved to Rome in the meantime, started going to college there and uh, Rome in Italy. And since then, though, since that moment where uh, we had made that conscious decision, I'm doing design from now on, you're sticking to programming, we found Flash somewhere along the way there. And so when the Diamond Multimedia job went away, because it, 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 I believe if I remember right, it transitioned to a month-to-month contract instead of a yearly contract. And we decided, you know, we've, we, we know enough of this now that we want to try to run our own company. So I believe we were 17 or 18 in Rome, and we started this small flash design and dev agency. And we were just building, you know, rich internet applications. I don't even think they were called that then. That was a word that came later. And we, were, we, we started, so we started, you know, really early in our careers in tech, building really animated experiences from everything for, you know, music production companies. EMI was one of the first projects we worked on, Red Bull and Rai, which is the Italian uh, national TV. And along the way, we were getting a lot of contracts. Well, we were not getting a lot of contracts, but we started getting a few contracts in the United States. And we realized that you know, the appreciation for the work that we were doing, and also uh, they paid a lot better, was a lot higher here in the States. And that's when we decided that we needed to move here and uh, and start our company here. As we begin to wrap up, just a, a few more questions on your trajectory. Right now, it's only 2D animations, right? What, what would be required to get to 3D animations? So it's well, Luigi can talk about the engineering there, but we we definitely don't see that as a blocker. We see that as something that we do want to get to. It's it's a it's a challenge. Yeah, I think the the bigger question is how do we do that from a UX perspective in a way that uh, doesn't break kind of the simplicity and the the elegance of what we have now. And inherently, by adding that third dimension, there's the ability to really complicate things. And we want to make sure that we still have the same UI concepts and paradigms that are available in our tool now um, that are just as easy to use in 3D. And I think that that's something that we, we absolutely want to tackle, but it's something that you know we also want to hear from our users if that's something that they really, really want. There's plenty for us to chew in the 2D world right now. And we have some, some exciting things that kind of bridge the gap between 2D and 3D. But eventually, that's, that's a huge passion of ours. We didn't get to mention it earlier, but yeah, because we started in games, we we also did do a lot of, uh, we've built a few different games, and that was another company that we did along the way. So that is something that is near and dear to us. So that- uh, Luigi's built full-blown game engines, which is where a lot of the, you know, concepts for this tool came from. Yep. And and kind of the, you know, the, one of the big concepts for, for Rive is absolutely that the line between game engine and app engine shouldn't be so, uh, so distinct. It really- an, an app engine should be able to make a game and uh, a game engine should be able to have beautiful UI. And that's something that's uh, still challenging today. Well, and you can think of, you know, one one quick example of where, you know, a tool like ours in the near future might um, need to or, or could provide value is, you know, virtual reality. There's definitely a need for user interfaces that work in 3D space. So 2D UI that maybe needs to wrap to a 3D environment or appear in a 3D environment. So um, there's definitely lots of exciting stuff there. And um, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking at it and thinking about it. We didn't really explore much about the business, <clears throat> but um, basically you've got... Uh, public and private settings for how people create their animations. So the default is if you create an animation, it's in public and you can pay for 
private access, private ed- editing and uh, animation. And there's this whole gallery of animations that people have created on your website on rive.app. So if anybody is just remotely interested in adding animations to their application or building games or anything, I this is a pretty cool. Your site's really cool to check out. It's just fun to explore. But just just to wrap up, I want your perspective on how animation could be used to make the average user interface better. So, you know, just most of my mobile apps, most of my desktop apps do not have animation in them. And for the most part, I I, I don't know the difference. I'm like, okay, that's that's fine. I don't need animation. I don't think. I don't really want it. But there are these little moments in certain applications like Facebook Messenger or Assistant, absolutely with Assistant, where the animation just adds a little bit of bounce and a little bit of liveness and a little bit of artistry to these applications. Where are we going to see animation in our day-to-day applications as this technology becomes more accessible? I, I really think that there, there's no limit there. I mean, I think you can use it. We're, we, we are building tools that will allow you to add animation to any part of your UI. And I think that what that enables and what gets me excited about that, which is something was probably the biggest feedback we'd get from our clients when we were working with clients to, to build products for them, was that they really want a personality. They, they want their, their brand to shine through. And you know when, when you talk about how forms nowadays are all just boxes or simple lines and stuff like that, um, there are companies like Red Bull that would specifically come and say, you know, we want something that's not cookie cutter. We want something that screams Red Bull and that's different. And something like this allows you to add a lot of personality and and a lot of differentiation. And I, and I do think that for the average developer, that's also going to be a way to really differentiate your app from, you know, the the thousands, if not millions of of other apps that are on the various app stores and it gets harder and harder to stand out and something that creates a delightful experience and and a reaction more than just you know hitting a login button and you know seeing a page go blank will make your app stand out in a in a big way yeah i think that a big part of animation that a lot of people don't realize is that it's it's basically just just managing state and what animations are good at are at you know transitioning those states in a way that makes it really clear that the thing is is moving. Not makes it really clear, but it gives the illusion that the thing is moving and it's got a soul. You know, animation comes from that anima, is I think Latin for for soul, soul. Italian. And too. and so to give something animation is to give it life. And I think that there's there, there's also this distinction of of you know having a tool that enables you to give something life doesn't just mean that it'll have a character or that things are going to be moving on the screen. It also just means how do you move those things on the screen effectively? And there's a lot of people that have tried to do this and are trying to do this um, today. And I think that it's, it's a shame that there isn't a tool that does do both. Manage your state. So how do I go from a login screen to the next screen and do that really elegantly. And it doesn't have to take up a lot of time, but do it in a way that uh, guides my eye and makes it clear that, okay, I've now changed. This thing didn't break. I'm not just popping into something else. I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning into something else, into the next view. And, and the way that that works is uh, controllable by a designer who's, who's building the whole vision um, and then easily implementable by the developer that, that's working with the tooling. 
And and I think that that's that that's a big thing that that maybe isn't quite clear yet, but. Um, a tool like ours enables not just characters that sit there and stare at you while you're typing and you know can give you feedback of whether you're doing something right or wrong, which is valuable, but it can also help you you know animate things off the screen or, or align things on the screen. And I think that that's, uh, that that's something that, that we're really excited to explore in more depth. And we think that is why a tool like, like this that, that is you know really reminiscent of something that we did used to have in the early 2000s with, with Flash is going to have a resurgence in this kind of a renaissance of, of, of animation and design where it's the designer driving the actual end application and it's not a compromise of, you know, we'll ship something that's good enough and looks okay. And I think that when you look back in the future at a lot of the apps that are running on our, our desktops and our mobile apps nowadays, we'll think back, like, you know, we'll have the same effect that we have now when we look at apps from the 90s. We'll be like, wow, I can't believe that used to look like that. Yeah, and to add just a little bit to what Luigi was saying there earlier too about the there, there's no reason for there to be this big distinction between an app engine and a game engine. And so if you start thinking about what experiences look like in games and how different they are from one game to the next, you start to see where we think you know apps could go because there doesn't need to be this 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 complete disconnect between a game engine and an app engine. Guys, thanks for growing software engineering daily. It's been really fun talking. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us. DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform. DigitalOcean is optimized to make managing and scaling applications easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. With predictable pricing and flexible configurations and world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. And DigitalOcean is simple. If you don't need the complexity of the complex cloud providers, try out DigitalOcean with their simple interface and their great customer support. Plus, they've got 2,000-plus tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software and languages and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free at do.co slash sedaily. One thing that makes DigitalOcean special is they're really interested in long-term developer productivity. And I remember one particular example of this when I found a tutorial on DigitalOcean about how to get started on a different cloud provider. And I thought that really stood for a sense of confidence and an attention to just getting developers off the ground faster. And they've continued to do that with DigitalOcean today. All their services are easy to use and have simple interfaces. Try it out at do.co slash sedaily. That's the letter D, the letter O, dot the letter C, the letter O, slash sedaily. And you will get started for free with some free credits. Thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. <laughs>